Sound Tradition, where we examine the theology, practices, and traditions of the contemporary church. My name is Jason Shirk. And my name is still Luke Hitz. And we are going to be talking about um, some recent events, kind of in a, in a sort of way, launching off of them. But in light of the recent election and the Capitol Hill situation, a lot of politicians have been calling for, for unity in our country. And we can all sympathize, sympathize with those calls, right? You know, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> however, it's, it seems like in light of how divided our country actually is, such a unity seems like it'd be virtually impossible when, you, when it comes down to it. You know? Yeah, that reminds me of something Dr. Cummins used to say. I don't know if you ever heard him say this in class, but he he had a lot of cat stories. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but he said you can take two cats, tie their tails together, throw them over a telephone line, and they are uh, they're, they've been unified, but they're not united. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's that's an apt picture to describe mm-hmm. what's going on in America. You can. They're, tie us all together, but there's there's definitely they are united. They are they're united. I mean, they're well, they're unified. They're together, mm-hmm. but they're, they're, there's some clawing going on in yes. the, on that telephone wire. <laughs> and when there are drastic differences of philosophy, the only unity that really can be accomplished is when one side determines to let the other side have what they want and determine what they're going to believe. Basically, you have to be passive and just lay down and play dead. You know. That's that's what it's going to take in, in a situation like this, I think, for our country to come back to that unity because both sides are so diametrically opposed right now. It, it just doesn't seem like they can meet anywhere in the middle. Yeah, when it comes to the views that people have, it it's not just if there's like it's not like there's three groups where they you know two agree on one mm-hmm. and two agree on some of those and then the other two kind of agree on the third. It seems like Whatever group you're in, you're you're almost all you know the issues. But they're you know what they're okay. They're going to be this way, and this side's going to be that way. I mean, it's it's a clean, clean break. break between fifty <laughs> percent of the population. Yeah, which and is that, that just kind of reminds us of a passage in Amos three three, which says, "Can two walk together except they be agreed?" You know, those cats they need to be going the right same direction <laughs> if they're going to get off that wire. You know? <laughs> so, but unity is not just a political topic. Um, that was just kind of a launching off point here. But it, within the church, unity has been a point of contention, honestly, for as long as the church has been in existence, really. Um, church Early church leaders have had their different theories on how to accomplish unity, what's important to ch- unity within the church. So I kind of did a historical survey of just a brief one of some of the perspectives on unity going down through the ages. And the first person I found dealing with the topic other than obviously Paul and the scriptures, okay, <laughs> right. was uh, Ignatius, who lived around 110 A.D. So that would be, what, 20 years after the Apostle John passed away? Right, right? it was about, about 90, 90 A.D. Right, yeah, so there's, there's a little bit of overlap going on in, in these time periods. But Ignatius um, taught in his letter to the Ephesians, I guess this is verse 13, he said this, Take heed to come together often, to give thanks to God and show forth his praise. For when you assemble frequently in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed, and the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of your faith. Nothing is more precious than peace, by which all war, both in heaven and earth, is brought to an end. And so he kind of, he promoted this idea of unity, but where was that unity to be found, according to Ignatius? He said the unity of our faith. 
it's a unity of our faith. And also he talked about the assembly, you know, mm-hmm. so this was, this was a local church that he is entreating to be united amongst themselves. And by being united, what's the result? That they will put to flight the powers of Satan and everything that he is trying to do in their, in their community. And I think this is important because this is really the answer to America's problem. It's not going to be politics. There's not going to be some great politician who comes on the scene and solves all the problems. It has to be families. It has to. Be, I mean, that's why we used to be greatly unified. There was a greater unity of faith, but you had strong families, and pretty much everybody pretty much agreed on the role of the mother and the father and how to raise your children. And the only way we're going to get back to that is hearts changing, and that's only going to happen through the church. So we're not going to focus on the political yeah. as much, but and that, but that is, that's what'll fix the political side. Right. And I guess I'm just saying what we're going to talk about now, mm-hmm. the unity of the church and really the, the power. And this is what Ignatius was saying, the, the power to stand against, you know, the real war, the real yes. culture war, you know, yes. we talk about culture wars now, but the real war is against the devil. Yeah. And so if we can fix this and our church is going to be strong and having a real effect in our communities, that's what's going to change things. Right. Yeah. And like I said, the, the unity that he's talking about is on the local church level. So you can take this to politics. It's like federalism. Okay. He's not talking about national level. He's talking right. about state level. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> you know, this is, this is local yeah. church level unity because those are the people that we live with day in and day out. You know, we need to be unified yeah. with those people. And it's also, it's a unity that's based on doctrine and not on ecclesiastical um, structures. Right. And that's going to become important as we go through the survey because that's going to change over time. As I have already observed, the church, having received this preaching and this faith, although scattered throughout the whole world, yet as if occupying but, but one house, carefully preserves it. She also believes these points of doctrine just as if she had but one soul and one and the same heart. And she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down with perfect harmony, as if she possessed only one mouth. For although the languages of the world are dissimilar, yet the import of the tradition is the one and the same. Now, this quote is actually pretty good for For our podcast, podcast, (laughs) because it's talking about that tradition. And again, we're not rejecting all tradition. We want to hold to the tradition that has been handed down to us. Well, yeah, he used that terminology, he said, yes. but you hand down. Yeah, and it, who is it handed <laughs> down from? In, in this this case, it's the apostles and the prophets, um, the scriptures that we have. That's the tradition that we are to hold fast to. And, he, and notice he makes a slight change here because in his first quote, he talked about the local church, right? This one's talking about the church that is scattered throughout the whole world. So what kind of a church is that? Uh, the Universal Church. <laughs> and we'll probably do a little bit of a podcast a little bit later on on that topic. Right. Okay, but obviously, clearly, from Ignatius's point in 110 AD, there was a Universal Church. There was this mystical united yeah. bind that tied them all together, basically. Okay, now, taking that concept, it started to morph over the years that followed in 200 and... 58, Cyprian of Carthage put out a philosophy of unity within the church. And basically his philosophy was a reaction to what had happened in 249 AD. Rome had 
started to persecute the church again in 249. And some of the professing believers had chosen to leave the church and, and apostatize and deny their faith. And so there was this big debate after the persecution had ended, do we let these people back into the church? And the uh, Novations, they said, no. But their apostasy shows that they weren't even Christians to begin with. They, they were just mm -hmm. pretending, basically. Okay? Cyprian, on the other hand, and actually the general Roman Catholic Church after that, adopted the viewpoint that if they were re-educated and um, restored, they could be brought back into the church, basically. And so you, ha you have this debate that was going on amongst those two groups. Now, obviously, was the Catholic Church in existence in 258 officially? Not quite. Not quite. <laughs> and that's a little bit later on. That's at what, least three, 50 more years. Yeah, 300-something. So, yes, in the 300s. So with Constantine officially making Christianity legal and the Church right. of Rome is given its power. But at this time, the Church of Rome was already beginning to grow in power to the point where they were presiding over other churches in their area. And they, uh, so Cyprian, he held that there can only be one united church under one united episcopate, and any breakaway movement is therefore a false church. And he based this on Matthew 16, verse 18, where Jesus turns to Peter and says, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Okay. There's been a lot of debates over the years on that passage right, right there. So the Roman Catholic Church and Cyprian obviously took this as Peter was the rock. Right. And so therefore, <laughs> the only true church could, be de could only be derived from the authority of Peter. Right. And then Catholic tradition says that Peter went to Rome right. and started the church there. And that's why that is... The, you know, that's the basis of the Roman Catholic Church. Right. There's kind of and there, there's kind of like two different arguments going on here because I know when when we were in college, one of the big arguments was was there not well not in college but amongst the students mm -hmm. <laughs> we would debate this but universal church versus local church right. and I know there were some guys you know, they were real big on local church mm -hmm. only and I wasn't even thinking of it in the context of Catholic church versus independent right. churches mm -hmm. i was thinking of it only as yeah every, every believer is part of a universal church to yeah. me that made perfect sense and so it was more of a reaction right honestly so and everyone i've ever heard talk about the subject the subject always conflates the idea of a invisible universal church with the catholic idea of a visible right. universal and i never church. even made that connection yeah. in college <laughs> i was like what are they what's the big deal what, yeah. what? but i can i can see that th this side of it is uh, the the Catholic Church really is claiming that they are the true church, and if you're not part of them, yes. then you are you know, heretic. I mean, of course, that that turned bloody through the years, but yes. that yeah. you. So this is kind of uh, applicable to current situations. Not saying that we're going to all be killed if we don't become Democrats, right. but there <laughs> is this, you know, join, you know, join or burn. You know, if you join yeah. us or die. Interesting tidbit of history: my actual ancestors, my physical ancestors, were killed by both the Catholic Church and the uh, uh, the groups from Zwingli in uh, yeah. Switzerland. <laughs> so, you know, because of this philosophy, yeah. you got to be part of our church <laughs> to be part of the church, basically. And Cyprian was saying, because Peter had that authority, every bishop that came afterwards had to have gotten their authority yeah. from Peter for it to be legitimate. Yeah, it kind of sounds like uh, another stream of thought, which we'll, 
I won't go into. Right yeah, now. the question, <laughs> and, and I know we're, now we're we're kind of getting sidetracked by history, but I'm curious, when did the seat of church power move from this Church of Jerusalem to Rome? Right. What happened? I don't know. Like I said, it would have been around the 200s. They would have they would have been merging that direction. So. Yeah. <clears throat> so you have Cyprian in two in the t- middle 200s proposing this idea of unity has to be centered around a physical, organized, visible Catholic universal church. And so that idea, though, was contradicted in, in the 300s and going into the 400s by Augustine, who actually taught a universal invisible church, contrary to the typical Roman Catholic doctrine. And that, that doctrine that Augustine taught was what the reformers latched onto much later on and when they decided to leave the Catholic Church because they couldn't reform the Catholic Church and they started their own different churches, basically. And so when they looked at Matthew 16, verse 18, they saw upon this rock, I will build my church. They saw this rock as not talking about Peter, but as being contrasted with Peter. And rather it was referring to his confession. Because right, right before that statement, he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And what did Peter say? Thou art the Christ. The Peter said, God. yes. Yeah. I was thinking of what the other disciples said. But yes. no, Peter said, you are the Christ. Mm-hmm. And so upon that confession, Christ would build his church, basically, is how, how they took that. And so that changed the, the understanding of unity from the Roman Catholic concept and restored it more to what Ignatius would have taught back in the 100s. Right. So that's just kind of a historical overview of the the past views of unity yeah. within the church. But as you fast forward to today's evangelical culture, there really are at least two strands of concepts as far as unity goes in the church. You have the typical neo-evangelical stance on unity that says as long as a person confesses that Jesus is Lord, there should be no barriers that separate us. Because you're my brother and sister in Christ. Right. Okay. On the other side, at least in practice, a lot of fundamentalists have made it so that they've become so separatistic that they can't have fellowship with even other good fundamentalist churches because they <laughs> differ on a lot of preferences of theology. Yeah. I mean, at our church, we, you know, here I'm, I'm not speaking really for our church. I'm throwing out a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. In my church... We, you know, you're only allowed to have a mustache, and that there's churches. <laughs> and this is not the, church. <laughs> the other church, the other church, and the other side of town, they have beards, so we don't fellowship with them. Right. And I'm just throwing out an example, and it can be that silly sometimes. It's like we can't fellowship with them because they don't follow my strict standards, and we've and we've talked about standards. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Go read the article. Yep. And so you you have really you have two extremes going on here. You have over separatism. And right. you have under separatism. And <laughs> right. the truth is somewhere in the middle. So if we're going to find that truth, that balance, we're going to have to take a look at what does the Bible actually say about unity? What is it and what is it based on? Okay. So by definition, unity is the state of being undivided or one. So unity is best exemplified amongst the Trinity. Okay. So you think of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When they came down to earth to create the earth, they all worked in conjunction together, and yet right. they were all separate 
it's part of the the mystery of the trinity is that they're they're yes. unified <laughs> and yet they're they're separate at the same time yeah for those who may not know you know you, we see it in the english because it says let us you know there's it's in genesis a few times where god seems to be talking to himself as let us but it is actually in the hebrew it's it's a uh, plural yes. so yeah. It's, we're not just making this up. And obviously, <laughs> if he's going to talk when nobody exists, he's got to be talking to somebody. Right. You know, so that, that just reinforces the idea that the the Godhead was unified as they created the earth. And so they, they best represent that picture. In fact, Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one even as he is with his father, talking about the unity that he had with his father. So much of the doctrine of unity in the scriptures Honestly, it deals with a topic that we're not going to talk about tonight, but it's related, and that is racial unity. Okay. Yes. Many of the passages talk about how Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into one body. Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28 deals with this, and then I right. talked about it in Ephesians a couple nights ago on our nightly blog, if you want to check that out. But So and, there's that, that yeah. racial aspect of unity. And also well. something we don't deal with today, but you know, master and slave—that was a—that mm-hmm. yes. was a part of the culture. And male and female. <laughs> and male and female. Yeah. Yeah. But so yeah, we're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus mainly on, you know, the, the other doctrines that deal with unity. Yes. Yeah. So if we want to understand unity, we have to understand what unity is based on in our lives. Okay, what causes us to be able to have unity in the first place? Location. So, yeah, location. Oh, location <laughs> so, only. No, that's that's yeah. the cat thing. No, it's it's not location. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. So, there are many a church that has been disunified, fighting and bickering amongst themselves, and they're not no. going the same direction. No. <laughs> but they sit in the same church week after week. Yes. Yeah. So the first basis for unity is obviously our shared relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? Ephesians 1 verse 10 says, We are gathered together spiritually in Christ, and share that common faith. So this this sense of unity is one I can share with all believers. Honestly, I have a shared relationship with all of those all of those believers that are out there. And honestly, in my opinion, there are different levels of unity that can be accomplished, and we'll kind of delve into that a little bit later on um, when we get to Ephesians chapter number four. But at a basic level, I should be able to have some sort of unity and relationship with any Christian that I meet on the face of the earth because of that shared relationship with Jesus Christ. Right. The second aspect or the second basis of our unity is our the fact that we all share the Holy Spirit. Okay? Ephesians 4, verse 3, we are challenged to work toward keeping the unity that walking in the Spirit brings among believers. So endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, I think is the exact phrase in, in that verse right there that we're challenged to. The third one is a shared faith truth or doctrine now this is the one that i think a lot of neo-evangelicals tend to forget right and that is that (laughs) unity has to be based on truth okay ephesians 4 verse 13 talks about the unity of the faith and then in john in jesus prayer in john 17 he later stated in john 17 he says sanctify them through thy truth thy word is truth and this is right after he's Uh, right in the same discussion as him talking about them being united and so it's based on the truth of god's word and obviously that word in that passage is not talking about jesus christ it's talking about the scriptures 
because Jesus right. was the one praying that they would be united <laughs> according to the, that word, that truth. Okay? So there can be no true unity if we ignore doctrinal differences. We can't ignore those. Yeah, and this is, you know, this, this really is the crux of the matter for most of our churches today. We Obviously, we agree that because we're Christians, we have a great thing in common as opposed to people not saved. But there are some things you just you have to agree upon if you're going to work together and if you're going to, you know, it's not that we hate them. You know, we, we know that Jesus said to his disciples, remember that story where I can't remember which gospel it's in exactly. But, they were casting out demons. But there was other people casting out demons in, in, in Jesus name or not Jesus name. But they said, you know, they're not part of us. You should tell them to stop. And Jesus said, you know, they're not against us. If they're, you know, we we're, 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 we're have the same goal. And it, you know, leave them alone. And that we should have that spirit. If there's a church out there that doesn't quite agree with us, and okay, we don't, we don't fellowship because of this, that, or the other reason, we shouldn't be like, you know, there's our enemies over there, right. you know. Yeah. So yes, yes, we are still Christians, and so if we bump into them somewhere and they sit down and we have a, so I, I think it's important that we can have unity, just because we are Christians. I mean, I've been on the road traveling with my kids and. People normally make comments, you know, that, oh, look how many kids you got. Oh, and they're so well behaved, you know, but they're not always that great behaved. But I guess compared to the kids who run around screaming and throwing napkins on the floor, they're at least a little bit <laughs> better behaved. But then sometimes you get, you kind of, you, you'll talk to people and, you know, you'll find out, you know, they, they go to church somewhere and then, you know, okay. And then sometimes we'll even, you'll eat with them or they'll pay for your meal. And, you know, I don't sit there and say, hey, do you believe to be baptized to be saved? You know, I, you know. We don't need to be that uptight about it, mm-hmm. but when you're going to have a church and you're going to have a direction and a and you need to agree on things. If if some if if one person's preaching, you don't have to be baptized. Another person saying you do have to be baptized. You know that's kind of hard to be united in your faith right. and doctrine. Yeah. yeah, another passage that dealt with that is First Corinthians one verse ten, which says, "Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." <clears throat> that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, and that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So the idea here is that we have the same message. We're going in right. the same direction with what we're talking about, what we're teaching, what we believe is, is correct. You know. And so again, this is local, local assembly being united, but they're being united around their doctrine, around their tr- the truth that they're teaching. But also, it's, it's something that's progressive. In Ephesians chapter number 4, prior to the verse talking about the unity of the faith, Paul had just talked about how God has given the church apostles and prophets and pastor teachers for the edifying of the body of Christ, right? And he concludes that this edification will continue until we come to a day of perfectness and unity. So when is the day that we are going to be perfectly unified going to come? Well, that, <clears throat> that won't be until we're in heaven, or the thousand-year reign may be part of that. <laughs> right, yeah, it's not, it's not until we go to heaven. The, so day, the day of the Lord, I guess, yes. maybe. Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> so the idea is, obviously, that we are going to continue to grow in unity through the teaching and preaching of those pastors and teachers okay, in the church. So in some ways, there will be disagreements. There is never going to be a church where everyone is on 100% agreement on every little issue. We should have a general agreement about the main teachings, the main uh, doctrine of the church, but to insist on 100% agreement on every little detail 
is not possible. It's it's not going to happen on, nope. <laughs> on the face of this, this earth. And that kind of ties into, uh, I, I said we needed to have, for unity, a shared burden, which I, I chose that word for, you know, we like our list, but burden may not be the best word, but Romans 12 and Philippians 2 talks a lot about how to have that unity, not to have strife, you know, put the other person first, make space for wrath, strive to have unity. And sometimes we just have to put other people first. You, you know, when you have these little disagreements or things that just don't matter, it's like, well, if it was me, I'd do it this way, but ever, three other people want to do it the other way, fine. If it's not going against doctrine, you know, you're going to have to be unified. But there's, there's some people who just, you know, it's just pride. They have so much pride. They can't let go of, they just, they're convinced they're right. And that, that, you know, that's a good thing because sometimes somebody needs to take the lead and go and get her done. Yeah. But, but sometimes somebody else has a better idea, but that, that other person can't let go of theirs, you know, and it, and, and that's okay. We're, everybody's different, but somebody has to be the person who's going to relinquish and put the other person first. Yeah. So true unity comes down to humbleness and Christ likeness. Let right. this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So if we're loving each other and bearing each other's burdens and putting other person, if everybody's doing that, yeah. then we're going to have good unity yes. as opposed to strife. Yeah. And so the last basis of unity, and there probably could be more of this, just our list. The last basis of unity is a shared mission. Philippians 1 verse 27 says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what is, what is our united mission that we are supposed to have? It is, it's evangelism. We are, we are to be striving together for the gospel. And, and so to preach the gospel, to bring the gospel to other people. So we need to have the same direction as a church. We need to all be striving to fulfill that ministry that we have all been right. called to as a church. And if we're all, you know, you know, the leadership of the church should provide the vision, but obviously that vision should include preaching the gospel. And if we're all striving towards that, and that becomes very important, you know, the other things in our lives will, will fall away. The little, the petty things, mm-hmm. those, you know, things we could fight over will fall away because we're, we have the same mission. It's kind of like, you know, teams, sport teams, you know, or Olympic teams. You got people that are from all across America. They come together to play in a sport in the Olympics. Who knows what their beliefs are, you know, but they, they throw all that aside for the sake of the team. And there's some of that comes in too. At the local level. At the, at the local, <laughs> at the local church level. Yes. yes. Yep. <laughs> so we've looked at what is unity? What is the basis of unity? Now we want to kind of turn and look at what unity is not. And the first point I have here is that unity is not a virtue in and of itself. And we, I kind of alluded to this earlier by talking about location. Yeah. So we're all, we're in our church, this church, First Baptist Church of whatever little town right. in the middle of nowhere. We've been here forever. We all hate each other's guts, mm. but we're still here <laughs> and we're united. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, obviously Psalm 133 verse one says that it's beautiful for brethren to dwell together in unity. So that is the goal. However, not all unity is good unity. You think of the Tower of Babel. Yeah. That was a group of men who were gathered together they were, and they were unified for a purpose. What right. was their purpose? Build this great monolith city and tower. And... <laughs> that would reach onto the heavens <laughs> right. and they could pull God down, basically, you know? 
I'm um, still I'm still undecided by mind what they're trying to do. Were, yeah, were they were trying to do, were they yeah. trying to literally reach up to heaven or were they trying to sacrifice to gods? I don't know. Yeah, but what was their what was their was their unity a good thing? In the end, it was not a good thing. It was not a good thing. Another circumstance where we see unity being bad is when Herod and Pilate got together to crucify Jesus. Take a look at Luke 23 verse 12, and just talks about how all the bitterness that had been between them was now repaired, and they were. All buddy buddy, and they are moving <laughs> well, forward in the same direction. Right? Talk, talk about politics; <laughs> that that'll turn on a dime. Yep. So, but was their action morally good? I mean, yeah, it was good that Jesus died for us, but was their action of killing Jesus a good action? No, it was not. No, it was not. So, unity is merely a vehicle for either good or evil. Okay. So, just because you're united doesn't mean like those two cats yep. hanging over the pole. That's not that's not a good thing. Not necessarily always a good thing. It, yeah. But it is a component of what you're What are you for and yeah. to, basically, is a, is a question you need to ask. I found this interesting quote by Spurgeon. I just thought, thought I'd throw this one out there to uh, stir up some people's minds, uh, maybe get some debate going on here. <laughs> but uh, Spurgeon mentioned this. He said, Although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, meaning he's willing to take the Lord's Supper with Presbyterians and Episcopals and other and Baptists and other groups who are believers. Yet with a slaveholder, I have no fellowship of any sort or any kind. I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church as a man stealer. So it's kind of a interesting right. point, but I think uh, it's important to realize that there are some social evils <clears throat> in the world that we tend to accept when we really should not be accepting. Right. And that, that was one of them in those days. And Spurgeon was willing to cut off unity and fellowship from somebody who was a slave owner. In those cases. Yeah, and sometimes people prize unity over doctrinal correctness yeah. or adherence or, to what got Jesus taught. Yeah, holiness, yeah. yeah. Also, unity is not the, not the same thing as sameness or uniformity, okay? That doesn't mean we're a bunch of white people with white American culture all gathered together worshiping God in our white music styles and our, <laughs> you know, our whiteness. You know, that's all, not with the same style, unity. the same style clothes and ties and dresses. Right. And... and so when we when we see the church, the united church in heaven, how is it described in Revelation seven verse nine? It's multitudes from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's various cultures and languages all represented in that church. And then, obviously, Galatians talked about Jews and Gentiles being united in the same body. There's going to be cultural differences, but those things don't destroy unity. They actually amplify it. Uh, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, if everybody were an, an ear, where would right. the seeing be? Or if everybody were an eye, where would the hearing be? You know. So there, there is a beauty of diversity within that unity. And so a call to allegiance that requires assimilation or laying aside cultural differences or just blind followership is not biblical unity. It might look like it from the outside. Right. That's actually what's happening in our political cultures. They're calling for assimilation and blind followership. Right. They're not calling for true unity. And that, that's, not, that's not biblical yeah. unity. Also, unity is not a cover-up for sin. Acts 5, verses 1 through 14, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They'd, they'd lied to God, really, about how much money they were going to give. And the result was they were slain. And 
After that, what was the result in the church? Verse 11 says, fear fell on all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter verse 12 says, miracles were performed. And then the end of verse 12 says, and they were all with one accord. So what was the result of God slaying Ananias and Sapphira? (laughs) Greater unity. Greater unity, right? So unity must never be an excuse to not deal with sin. I found this quote by a lady named uh, Kina. I'm probably saying her name wrong, Aragon. But she said, Christian unity doesn't sweep evil under the rug, stiff-arm critique, or dismiss conflict in order to maintain a kumbaya circle with the vulnerable, while the vulnerable suffer in silence. So we're not to seek unity at all costs where we're not willing to deal with actual problems that exist among us. Mm. So biblical unity is more than just a shared relationship. That's the new evangelical position. But it's also less than complete, perfect, blind allegiance to one man's set of doctrinal beliefs. Okay? Yeah, that's not not the same thing as unity. Yeah, and, and you're you're on the slippery slope of a cult at that point, <laughs> <laughs> yes. sliding into a cult. Yeah, but. yeah. So once again, everything's a balance. Mm-hmm. You, where and I th- hopefully we've given you some biblical perspective on where you ought to fall in unity. Because if we're united, we're seeking to be. You know, we're saved. We're following the doctrine the Bible teaches. We're loving each other. We're working towards seeing people get saved. We're going to have unity. And if we can, from there, that should grow out across America and hopefully solve the political problems too. And so basically, if I were to summarize what is biblical unity, it's a shared relationship. It's a general doctrinal agreement. It's shared mission. It's shared passion. And it's a shared empowerment. Those are the basis of biblical unity that we all need to have in our lives right. as we strive to move forward as a local church yeah. to please our Lord. So if you're a Christian out there and you're all bummed out by the world and all the negative things, I would just encourage you to <clears throat> try to create unity in your church where you're at, and God can use you to, to do great things. All right, well, we hope that... Uh, podcast has been a help to you guys as you strive for unity in your churches seek to have that balanced perspective on what is unity not being over overly separatistic but also not uh, denying the doctrinal differences and compromising in the process Mm -hmm. as always grace and peace be with you guys and we'll we'll talk at you next week